0: Good morning. It's good to be good to be back with you again today. Uh, today we're going to be examining one of truly my favorite passages of Scripture from Ephesians two, one to ten. If you want to begin turning there, uh, that's where we're going to be most of the time. Ephesians chapter two, verses one to ten. I was challenged a few weeks ago, Candace and I attended a church service with my in-laws and the speaker was discussing how useful our personal testimonies can be in sharing the gospel with others. And I say I was challenged because I'm going to share something very candid with you. Some of you may charge the stage when I say this. Sometimes listening to people's testimony of salvation causes me great anxiety, (laughs) And I'm going to explain that. So before you rush up here and throw me off the stage, hear me out. And I'm not talking about our testimonies of what God is actively doing in our lives. It's absolutely critical. I mean, there's no doubt about that. We are all going through different things. We've experienced different things in this life. And that is something that should be at the forefront of our mind and on our tongues uh, to speak with other people. But when it comes to the issue of salvation, and this is why sometimes I get a little nervous when I hear them. And some of them are very moving. They keep the focus where it needs to be on God's grace and redemption. So we're talking about our salvation experience. The focus should be on God. But too often I've heard stories that either do one of two things. They focus on the attention on how bad the person was. Almost to a point of pride. I used to get drunk and kick puppies. Something to that effect, of how bad you were. And if you have multiple testimonies, sometimes the first person doesn't have a chance because the next person's going to get up and say, you know what? You think you were bad. I was really, really bad. So that's one thing that I've heard. The second would be how the person wasn't all that bad of a person and just felt like, well, it was time to make a decision for Jesus. Those are two things that when I hear those things, I'm like, we got to get our focus on salvation, and it needs to be focused directly on God, centered in Christ. But by the end of the man's message, I felt that he'd made a good case for using a Christ-centered testimony to start a conversation. And anyway, to all of that to say, it started my mind thinking about how Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is the universal testimony of every true Christian. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is a universal testimony of, of everyone who is truly a Christian. I thought it would be a fitting tie with last week, but also extending a little further into our purpose as Christians. So if you will stand with me, we are going to read Ephesians chapter two, verses one to 10. Hear the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, thank you for this day. I thank you for your many blessings. Father, I thank you that you, are a, you have an open ear to us, that we can bring our cares and concerns to you, even, even regarding physical ailments that are, are striking our loved ones. Father, difficulties that we all share in this, in this world. Father, we know that you hear our prayers I pray that you would be with us this morning. I pray that you would guide and direct the time that we have to spend in your word. Father, knowing that your word never returns void. Guide and direct us. Help us to be at peace with our salvation. And to, Father, know and to understand why it is you have called us to be your people. Guide and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ephesians is one of the Apostle Paul's prison epistles. So it was written from a prison cell in Rome sometime between 60 and 62 A.D. The church at Ephesus was led by Priscilla and Aquila, who Paul had left there on his second missionary journey and was later firmly established by Paul himself on his third missionary journey. So Paul spent some time in Ephesus. So as as he's in a prison cell in Rome, he is writing back to them. He's writing to believers telling them of their richness of God's grace and salvation to both Jew and Gentile. Walter Liefeld, if you're ever studying the book of Ephesians, I highly recommend his commentary. It's very helpful. Walter Liefeld comments that more than any other book in the Bible, Ephesians displays the great purpose and plan of God for the church. It's a very important thing that we're facing right now. Ephesians is a book we should pay much attention to. Let's now examine the text in more detail, starting at verse 1. Paul starts out by saying, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And at the outset, let's keep our mind throughout this passage To be able to see the contrast that Paul is anxious to convey between death and life. Between sinner and righteous. He's going to make these contrasts several different times through this passage. The contrast between death and life. First, let's consider the word dead. This may seem foolish. What do you mean examine the word dead? Doesn't dead mean dead? Aaron, why are you stickler on words? Well, it's an important thing to understand the word dead. Dead certainly means dead, but I'm not sure that we understand the true significance of being spiritually dead. Paul uses the Greek word nekros in this passage. Bauer, in his Greek lexicon, defines this use as pertaining to being so morally or spiritually deficient as to be, in effect, dead. Period. Dead. Dead. In the medical field, sometimes after a surgery, uh, the surgeons will bring the patients back for a washout. And what that means is they're going to take the patient back. They're going to go in wherever this wound was, and they're going to get rid of the necrotic, get that word necrosis, necrotic tissue away from the living tissue. Why? Because the necrotic tissue is dead. It cannot be revived. It is turning a different color it needs to be removed it is dead it can do nothing to make itself alive again it is to be removed prior to God's work of grace man is dead in his sin and what do these spiritually dead folks do with their time they sin and they sin at will they sin because that's what they want to do that's by nature who we are notice Paul says dead in them He doesn't say because of them. He says we are dead. We were dead in them. We must remember that we are dead because of the sinful nature we were all born with. We are not sinners, and this is a fine distinction, but pay attention to the sentence. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. That's who we are. We are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners by nature. It's not that we were born neutral and somehow down the road a few years we were spoiled by sin. We are born into sin. That's from the fall, from Genesis. What else do these folks do? Will they follow the course of this world. As Liefeld again points out in his commentary, existence, this is so important, existence prior to receiving eternal life is not, as might be supposed, a state of neutrality. We are not in a neutral state at birth. We are bent towards sin because of the fallen nature. Man in his sinful state is not neutral. He is sold out to the world, fulfilling, as it were, the lusts of the flesh. Turn with me briefly to 1 John. 1 John. On towards back, on on back towards Revelation. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. See if John relates to what Paul is saying. And obviously he will because he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But listen to what this says, what John is saying in his letter. 1 John 2, 16 and 17. For all that is in the world, that, that word is all. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Listen to what John says about the world in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you wanna know what this looks like, this whole idea of the world, you don't have to go far turn on a TV, a radio, look at social media, or set in a secular classroom. This is why there is such a burning in my heart for young people. And to be honest, church, at times we've been a a bit lackluster describing what the course of this world is and the consequences that it brings. Instead of thinking through these things and speaking up, we put our apathetic heads in the sand too often. Church, the course of this world proclaimed the death of God and kicked the truth out of the public school system. The course of this world proclaims with thunderous voice the new religion of our culture. I am the captain of my own ship, and I will determine what reality is. The course of this world has elevated Darwinism to religious status. Darwinism tells our kids that they are nothing but grown-up germs. And whatever feels good is okay. The course of this world devalues life at every stage. The course of this world undermines the sanctity of marriage in many degrading forms. The course of this world is, as Paul states, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The course of this world has caused our culture to become completely infatuated with itself, even believing that we can define our own reality. Beloved, both we and our children are drinking this kind of thinking and by the gallon. We are constantly inundated by social media and the godless entertainment industry selling this poison. We have made an idol out of ourselves R. Kent Hughes, before his passing, made this poignant statement. He said this, Someday, if history is allowed to continue, a perceptive artist may sculpt a statue of 20th century man with his arms draped about his inflated self in loving embrace, kissing his mirror image. In other words, we are self-worshippers when left to ourselves. And this is nothing other than the sin of old. The desire for autonomy... Or self rule. How did the serpent tempt Eve in the garden? Think back to Genesis. How did he tempt Eve? If you eat it, Eve, you will be what? What was the temptation? Like God. If you eat it, Eve, you will be like God. No, we are certainly not neutral in our fallen state, we are absorbed with ourselves. And as such, we are enemies of God, is what the scripture says. In our fallen state, prior to salvation, because of our absorption with ourself, we are at odds, at enmity with God himself. And the church needs to examine itself and make sure we are not being blinded to this sin. Paul is being very blunt to the Gentile converts. And it should seem blunt to us today, as verse 3 tells us, listen to this. This is the leveling field right here. Okay, so Paul's got a point in his finger at the world. Now listen to what he says. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Paul says. Paul is letting us know that before we get our self-righteous hats on, that we are all guilty of such things prior to the gracious work of God in our lives, he is leveling the field here, much like he did in Romans chapter 1 to 3, which we spoke about last week. Remember Romans chapter 3, at the end of his, uh, he, he lays all this out and he said, There is none righteous, no, not one. <clears throat> Again, I've heard Christians give their testimonies before who make statements like, Well, I really wasn't all that bad. Really? I don't care if your name is Adolf Hitler or Billy Graham. You were by nature children of wrath headed for the same end. This verse is an equalizer meant to humble us as Christian people. Where they are, we once were. You've all heard the adage, but for the grace of God, there go I. That's what Paul is saying right here in Ephesians 2. As Paul so often does, he paints a very bleak picture Before he explodes into into language that exalts the glory and grace of God. And look with me as Paul makes his transition from death to life. Remember we were talking about the contrast that he draws. He's making the transition here from the talk of death to the talk of being made alive. The transition happens in in verse 4. But God, I talked about this last week. If I were to make a t-shirt, it would probably say, but God, dot, dot, dot. By nature, we are dead in our transgressions. Listen to what it says. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By nature, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. But do you hear this tremendous refrain that Paul makes? But God, being rich in mercy. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Man, that's good stuff. By grace you have been saved. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, by his grace, made us alive together with Christ. But God, underline it. If you'll notice in verses 4 to 7, you don't appreciate it so much in, this, in, the, in, in our translation that we have. But it's all one sentence. And Paul does this so often. It's like once he starts writing about the grace of God, he can't even come up for a breath. He's just writing and writing and writing. But he made us alive. See the contrast. Death to life. Like the world... Listen, church. Like the world, we were following the passions of the flesh... But glory to God, he made us alive. He made us alive. Us who? Who is the us? Well, remember the audience. He's writing to believers. If you are a Christian, you owe your thanks to only one, and that is God who made you alive by his grace. Oh, how the church needs to understand this point that they may give glory to the savior of their souls. We were dead. He made us alive. Beloved, can I submit to you that the analogy of salvation rampant in the church today goes something like this. A man on life support who is very ill and the gospel is likened to a spoonful of medicine representing the cure, but the man must reach out and take the medicine to secure his healing. It sounds right, but that's not the portrait of salvation in the Bible. We are dead. What can a dead man do about his condition? Not a thing. We have to be made alive before we can reach out for the medicine. I alluded to this last week. Let's turn to it just briefly. I, I, I almost hesitate to turn there because I don't want to get lost here. But John 3. I think it needs to be read. John 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, 1 to 8. This is when Nicodemus comes to seek out Jesus. He's being honest. He's, he's trying to. He doesn't want his friends to see that he's coming to Jesus to ask some questions. Listen to what Jesus says in the interchange they have in John 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews... This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus recognizes something here, and he's coming to ask Jesus a question. Jesus answered him, Listen to what Jesus says Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Church, we have to be born again, or we cannot even see the kingdom of God. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. Think of Lazarus, dead and decomposing. What does our Lord say? It's not a, he doesn't say, hey, Lazarus, if you'll cooperate with me, I'll bring you out of there. He says, Lazarus, come forth. So Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 tells us that the Christian life is by grace. The grace of God in salvation that makes the dead alive. And what is God's purpose in doing this? Let's look and see that God certainly has a purpose that is actually introduced to the reader in Ephesians 1. And I think we're going to refer back to it here in a couple minutes. If we have time. God certainly has a purpose for doing this. You're not saved without a purpose. It's kind of where we... We didn't quite get to that last week, but we're saved for a purpose. Ephesians 2, 6 to 10, if you want a synopsis of those four verses, this life has a purpose. The first purpose focuses on us. By God's grace and salvation, we are said to be seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing statement. Seated with him in the heavenly places. We're talking about going from being dead, chasing after the lust of our own desires, to being made alive by the grace of God and seated at the right hand with Jesus in the heavenly places. That's what that means. If you could explain exactly what that means, please come to me. But it's an amazing statement. Seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus... That is who we are as Christian people. John MacArthur commenting on this verse states that we are no longer of this present world or in its sphere of sinfulness and rebellion. We have been rescued from spiritual death and given spiritual life in order to be in Christ Jesus and to be with him in the heavenly places. That's not talking about sometime in the future. That's talking about now, who we are as Christian people. The Greek word seated is in the aorist tense, which gives the idea of an already completed act. It's not something that is coming to us. It has been granted to us by grace. See the contrast. Once following the course of this world, now by grace seated with Christ. From here to here, what a blessed comfort that is. I don't know about you, but we so often get bogged down by the cares of this world we do we just will be real with it I heard a friend of mine one time say he said you know not very often do I wake up feeling like a Christian and I thought man that's an honest statement the biblical writers would have us see that this life is but a vapor and our hope has been secured in Christ as we are seated with him The second purpose is to the praise of God's glory. That's the second purpose in our passage. That he, that's God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did anyone deserve the grace that they received at salvation? Not a one. Not a one of us. It's that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches for sure. How is that for a promised church? In the ages to come, God is going to continually shower us with his goodness. Our salvation, first and last, demonstrates the immeasurable riches of his grace. And just take a moment to soak in it. The immeasurable riches of his grace poured out to us undeserving sinners who were dead in our trespasses and sins. He makes us alive, awakening in our faith that we may embrace Christ. Ephesians 2, eight and nine, very familiar passage. Paul reiterates the fact that salvation is all of God and time does nowhere near permits me to expound upon these two verses I would like to. There's too much here, but know this, The grace and the faith are equally gifts from God, apart from which we would still be lost in our sin. That's clear from the passage. The grace and the faith are equally gifts from God, apart from which we would still be lost in our sin. There is no room for boasting. No room. Apart from the sovereign grace of God, we would all remain dead in our sins. Going back to Liefeld's commentary, he says, God is indeed sovereign in the matter of grace. It is inconceivable that salvation should in any way depend upon the individual since it is part of God's overall plan in chapter 1. And let's refer back to it. You think that was too strong of a statement? Let's let Paul speak for us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. Again, this is one of those passages where there are no periods or commas. There are in our Bibles, but when Paul's writing it, it's just a complete run-on sentence because he can't stop. Listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Kind of sounds a little bit like chapter 2 that we just went into. Listen to this, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is Christ, sets up a most appropriate conclusion to our passage today verse 10 listen to what verse 10 says and what Paul says it's kind of a purpose it's again it's a purpose statement here for we are his workmanship he's writing to believers writing to Christians we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them clear as a bell Why were we created in Christ Jesus? It says it. Why were we created in Christ Jesus? Yes, for good works. I never realized the tension that the idea of grace and works brought about until I started trying to preach it to others. Because you start talking about grace, and people are going to say, well, if it's all a grace, it doesn't matter how I live. I can go live however I want. And if you say, well, works are important, people will say, "Uh uh-uh, it's all grace. There should be no tension. It is all of grace. Or we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. It's all of grace. But it says right here that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you follow Paul's thought, he's helped us to understand our situation. All the way from being dead in our trespasses to being made alive by the grace of God. First, verse 10 simply brings to a crescendo God's purpose. And that is that having experienced the grace of God in salvation, we make it our singular objective to live for him. It must be in that order. This is why he saved us. Again, created in Christ Jesus for good works seems so simple, but sadly so misunderstood today. God has called us for a purpose. I've quoted this before, but as John Calvin so aptly put it, it is the task of the visible church to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible. That's what we are to do. We are to live out our faith boldly, without shame, but also with humility, knowing that we were dead in our trespasses before he made us alive. Consider Colossians 1.21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, sound familiar? Doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Listen to this. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is positionally. We talked about it last week. When God declares our innocence... Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at us. And now, like in in Romans 12, when Paul says, what other response can we have receiving this grace but to make our lives count for him? We do not earn our salvation this way. Salvation has already been granted. It's just a response to grace. Does that make sense? If you look at the message of God's prophets in the Old Testament, it is almost always related to calling the people to obedience to the covenant. Constantly you see the prophets going back and saying, you made a covenant with God. Come back and walk the straight and narrow. Church, that should be our same endeavor today. We are to reflect the glory of God in obedience. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. I don't have time. Um, Rich. Verse 1 Peter 1 and 2. Beloved, church is not a place to merely disinfect Christians for two hours a week. We are not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. That is a very, very important distinction. We are not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. God has a purpose in saving us, in redeeming us, in buying us back. We hear much today about revival this and revival that and God send a revival. That should be the prayer of our hearts. Do you know what will bring revival? The church being what we are called to be. That's when revival comes. It's not a mystery. It's when the church begins to live as the church. I've said this before, but I tend to get so angry at the world. I want to lash out. I want to lash out at the world for being the world. What we need to be frustrated with is at times the the body of Christ in the United States failing to be what they've been called to be. That's where the frustration needs to lie. The world is going to be the world, just like we were being the world before God poured out his grace upon us. Doesn't mean you go out swinging Bibles at people. We go out in patience because of humility, knowing from which we were called. Does that make sense? Doesn't mean we condone, but we go out in humility to them, living a life that demonstrates the grace that we have received. I, I don't know how to say it any differently. In Ephesians, Paul through the Holy Spirit, this is my concluding statement. In Ephesians, Paul through the Holy Spirit tells the story of every believer from when we were still following the course of this world and by nature children of wrath through our blessed salvation by God's grace and the truth that we are saved for a purpose. We are saved for a purpose. We all have different stories. We are all going through something different. makes us more able to relate to so many other people out there that are hurting and struggling. That we are to bear witness to the kingdom of Christ until that kingdom is consummated at his glorious return. That is what the church is to do. That is our marching order, church. To bear witness to the kingdom of Christ until that blessed day when the kingdom is consummated at his return. And come, Lord Jesus, as John said in Revelation. It tells of a contrast between death and life, light and darkness, goodness and evil. Beloved, where do you stand today? There isn't much gray area here. We are either following the prince of the power of the air that is Satan or we are following the prince of peace. May we endeavor to know our glorious Savior more and more that we might live according to his word and reflect his goodness in the way that we live our lives. Man, that humbles me to the core when I read my own words that we might glorify Christ more and more as we, as we live according to his word and reflect his goodness in the way we live our lives. It shatters me sometimes when I think of the example that I set. You know the good news? Even when we fail, and we are going to fail, daily fail, to live up to that standard. Going back to 1 John, the good news is As we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to go on forgiving us of all unrighteousness because a bruised reed he will not break. And I'll close with this illustration. A famous actor was once the guest of honor at a social gathering where he received many requests to recite favorite excerpts from various literary works. An old preacher was in the crowd and he asked the actor to recite the 23rd Psalm. The actor agreed on the condition that the preacher would also recite it when the actor had completed his recitation. Now, the actor's recitation was beautifully intoned with great dramatic emphasis, for which he received lengthy applause and adulation. The preacher's voice was rough and broken for many years of preaching, and his diction was anything but polished. But when the preacher finished his recitation, there was not a dry eye in the room. And when someone asked the actor, what made the difference? The actor replied, I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. Church, may we endeavor to not only know, but follow after our great shepherd, who has called us into his marvelous light. Father, again, we feel unworthy of such things. Humble us to the core. Father, enable us by your Spirit to see your kingdom and to walk out in humility from this place, knowing that as we live in the world and we are among those in the world as we spend our week, Father, that prior to your grace in our lives, we were following the same path that they were following. Give us boldness, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might have the power to live out the life to which you called us, Father, which is our purpose in being called in the first place, that we are truly your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Father, knowing... Your blessed grace and allowing us to know, Father, that as we fail, you are faithful and just as we confess our sins to go on forgiving us of all unrighteousness, Father. Help us to be examples to those who are in need. Father, so many, many of us have different experiences and come from different backgrounds. Father, making us able to relate to different people in different ways, and I pray that you would help us to see that as your purpose. To make visible the invisible kingdom of Christ, Father, until you return. And Father, we look forward with such anticipation to that day that we might cry out with the Apostle John, Come, Lord Jesus. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.